welcome to the Maris Review. I am delighted to have my, I, I, let me call you a colleague from, from the world of, of Lit Hub and Catapult and, and the wider literary world. It's Emily Temple. Her short fiction has appeared in Colorado Review, Electric Literature's Recommended Reading, Indiana Review and other publications. She lives in Brooklyn where she is a senior editor at Lit Hub and The Lightness is her debut novel. Welcome, Emily. Thanks for having me. Such a pleasure. So before we even start with the, like the, the overall plot of your book, I think it's, it's so clever that you give your characters the ultimate conflict because telling teenage girls that desire is the root of all suffering seems cruel, actually. Tell me about setting a book at a, it's what's, what is basically a Buddhist camp for teenage girls and how that came to you. Yeah. Um, well, this was the, not the, but certainly a central struggle of my own teenage dumb because my uh, family is Buddhist and every summer we would go to a meditation center that is not at all like the one in the book, but is sort of in the scenery is similar. Well, sure. Put it that way. Okay. Um, so yes. So when I was a kid and things would happen to me, like I would, you know, I, there was a point in my teenage life when I invested all of my personality in my hair. <laughs> I just thought... <laughs> This Different is the best colors, thing about me. Or... No, it was like it had to be just so perfect. It was very, very long. <laughs> I could have worn it as a shirt. And I had, there was an extravagant highlighting ritual with the at home kits. And then, wow. I, you know, and then, and I had about four different products that I put into it every day. And I, I just thought, like, this is what makes me beautiful and cool. It's my hair. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I, already I'm, I'm saying things about myself I shouldn't tell people. But, <laughs> um, I'm 16. Um, but, you know, I would, so I would get, I got a bad haircut once and I was just looking in the mirror in despair and my dad sort of wanders by and he's, and I'm like, dad, you know, I got these, like, I got this haircut, like, look, it's, and he's, you know, he's just like, well, everything's impermanent. Just <laughs> keeps walking. <laughs> Having to deal with that uh, when, when everything matters so much. Yeah. It's it, hard it's, to wrap your head around it. It's so, I mean, and of course my dad was right. Mm -hmm. You know, it was impermanent and your hair of all things mm -hmm. is, is very impermanent, but you really can't hear that when you're 16, when you're a teenager and your whole life has just exploded <laughs> with desire and fear and new awareness of your body and your surroundings. It's just, it's like the last thing that you can really uh, internalize. Yeah. I feel like wanting is such a, a key verb for teenage dumb. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I sometimes think about this as an adult, how we are released slightly from 
I mean, obviously we still want things, but that we're rele- we're both released and shut out in a cruel way mm. of that obsessive, just overwhelming desire. And especially, at least, I don't know, for me, the desire was sort of unfocused. Sure. It was just, I want the world, not like I would really like to have this, you know, house in upstate New York or something. <laughs> and I, yeah, absolutely. And um, Olivia is your main character, but she befriends these girls who are at this, I'm going to call it a camp. and um they spend so much time chasing down what you call the feeling with a capital f and that just seems like oh yeah that could be a buddhist thing but it's also like the unnamed unknowable thing that just exists that everybody just wants to feel something good yeah it's it's just transcendence right mm-hmm. just trying to get to something that is like a little more than what it seems like the everyday is and i feel like that that's what religion is that's what art is that's so much of what we seek in you know is just to get one step above our everyday lives somehow or maybe 10 depending yeah yeah <laughs> depending on the character and so yeah there is there is that element of the craft in, in this book, um, especially when, when the girls decide that levitation should be their main goal, to be literally removed of wants and burdens. How? <laughs> I feel like levitation. Now, I stumbled in sideways. I, I started, when I started writing, I had the place and that was it. And I knew I was going to have this sort of like questioning main character uh, because that's sort of my relationship to Buddhism. And I I wanted to to put her in, but I I sort of stumbled into levitation when I, honestly, it was through wordplay. I thought meditation center. Uh And then I thought levitation center. (laughs) And because I had been thinking about all of the many ways that levitation is part of our pop culture. It is just always a symbol. Mm -hmm. It's always this, it's a symbol of power. It can be a symbol of extreme sexual pleasure. Mm -hmm. It can be a symbol of figuring something out. It can be a symbol of just, it's just like a shorthand for magic. Right. You know, it's like something is just floating, you know, when, all of my references go back to Buffy the Vampire Slayer, you know, so it's like, <laughs> please, you get, you make the pencil move. Right. It's just this, it's just this really common thing. And so I started to think about why that was so desired and so ubiquitous in, in terms of representing power, especially for girls. I mean, the, the traditional thing is you see the male magician levitating the young girl. Mm-hmm. And so I just, and of course, uh, levitation is something that is part of Buddhist practice. Right. Um, and it is traditionally possible with certain practices in Buddhism. It's, you know, supposedly. Yeah. 
you yeah. can do it. <laughs> and, I don't and, know if that's true. <laughs> well, and there's this mythology that has to surround it, right? Because if it's, if it's something that only a few can, can ever achieve, especially in a religious context, right? Um, then the rest of us have to <laughs> have a reason to keep hoping and wanting. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's what many hierarchies do. Yes, for us. indeed. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> what an excellent point. And, and I, I, speaking of hierarchies, um, the narrator does take a moment to say towards the end of the book, I'm not giving anything away that she does realize that the practicers of Buddhism that um, she has the biggest problem with perhaps are the upper class or middle upper middle class white people who kind of pick and choose what they want to take from this culture and this religion and uh, apply it however they see fit. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) (laughs) Americans are very guilty of this. I mean, uh, white people are guilty of this when it comes to everything. Um, But in particular, I am particularly prone to, or at least, or positioned rather, to notice it when it comes to Buddhism because um, I grew up, because I grew up with it, so I feel like I know the realty. Um, But yeah, we, I mean, and this is, you know, when I was a kid going to this Shambhala Center every summer, almost everyone there was white. It just, there were, there were a few uh, Tibetan teachers, mm-hmm. and there were some, um, you know, a, a, a few people of color here and there, but really it was something that white people were adopting to achieve their liberation. Mm-hmm. And huh. now, on the one hand, for Shambhala in particular, you can't, like, the, it was created by a Tibetan teacher who created it to bring Buddhism to Westerners. Right. So it's, it wasn't like, you know, they were, they were meant to be white people, mm-hmm. but as it, and he was the guy that introduced it to the beats. And so it, it all grew from this Tibetan teacher in the West, but it has become a yoga pant, yes. like self-help, um, you know, here is my shrine, please bring me money sort of situation <laughs> that uh, maybe isn't paying the ancient religion and uh, the, the respect it deserves. Yeah, but also I, I am constantly impressed um, with the characters in, in your book who are doing the reading and like <laughs> really like at least they're, they are, um, it's more than going to Target and buy a, a cute shirt with a Buddha on it. Namaste, bitches. <laughs> Does a place like this actually exist, like specifically for teenagers? There, as far as I know, it does not. But there, so there are 
camps, the, the, the mm-hmm. Shambhala Center that I went to has a family, it's called Family Camp in the summers, which is directed at parents and kids. Um, and there are also lots of instances where um, contemplative art and mindfulness practices and other borrowed stuff from Buddhism or, you know, direct stuff from Buddhism is used with kids who are in trouble or as as used as like for the bad quote unquote kids. So I sort of melded those (laughs) things into this like penal program situation that as far as I know, it doesn't actually exist. And it, but I do feel like I have tried to meditate and I am not a, a, a good practitioner, but um, I, there, there is something to the idea of, oh, if we could just focus enough to let everything else disappear, we could be fixed. Yeah. I mean, levitation sucks. I mean, excuse me, meditation sucks. Levitation, I'm sure, is great. (laughs) I mean, I'm not going to talk down on that. No, I mean, hey, um, let me be Storm. Um, Meditation, yeah, it's very very hard. I think that that one of the problems with uh, the American conception of meditation is is like kind of that it overpromises in that way. Yes. That it does say, well, if you can just sit there for an hour, or really what they tell us is, if you can just sit there for five minutes mm-hmm. and just focus on your breath, mm-hmm. then you'll be able to fix your anxiety. You'll be able to fix your digestion. Mm-hmm. You will calm. You'll be able to deal with the pandemic. You'll be able to deal with everything. And it's just not that easy. And I mean, I can't just don't download an app <laughs> that tells me how to do this. And I would say no. I mean, you can, you can do it. <laughs> You're right. You can right. download that app. And I'm not saying it's even bad. I'm just saying no, it's that not. it's like not like everything else in the world. We want just the quick mm-hmm. fix and it doesn't really exist. You have to do the work. Oh, I know. And and I guess as a teenager, you don't even really know that yet. Right. Yeah. As a teenager, you still think that there is a back door to enlightenment Mm -hmm. that you can just like, if you find the right uh, guy to teach you that (laughs) you'll just get in there. So another part of this book, of course, is that um, you have this huge center and all of these young girls and just one hot gardener <laughs> who who might have the answer to everything even though he's 21 not that wise seemingly no tell me about the girls you've created and how they interact with him yes well they all have slightly different stances towards him mm-hmm. but certainly they all think to one degree or another that he has something that they want. And that may be just his body or, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but more importantly, it's that they think that he can levitate. And so he sort of 
holds the secrets of the universe that they are trying to access. And obviously this is an exaggerated and is basically an analogy for how you often feel as a 16 year old. And when there's this like guy in his early twenties around <laughs> showing you attention, you're like, wow, he definitely knows stuff I want to know. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, also, I mean, and also not only does he know stuff that you want to know, but and again, maybe I'm giving too much away about myself, but it's a, it's often a way that young girls begin to realize both the extent and the limits of their power. Mm-hmm. So when they come into contact with someone like this, who is absolutely not appropriate for them to be uh, engaging in this kind of thought and discourse with, but is close enough that he is this tantalizing force that they can exert their will on or, you know, and, and then figure out how, how far that can go. So that's what they're, I mean, it's almost like, I think of it now almost like a sounding board where you're like, yeah. how far can I go? How much can I do? What can I get? Uh-oh, uh-oh, something bad's happening. <laughs> <laughs> don't give too much away. Yeah, don't give too much away. <laughs> and of course, part of the process of, being a teenager, but particularly for your characters, is trying in every way possible you can think of to experience the more, to get to that other plane. And so, I mean, I I love that part of it is they do ASMR. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's step one. Step one to enlightenment ASMR. Yeah. Um, I think it's the first time I've come across ASMR in fiction. Well, we haven't actually known about it for that long. We haven't haven't, known about it. I haven't named it, right, for that long. And so it it does seem somehow compatible, though, with, with the other practices that they're trying. Yeah, because it it's it is it's the same. It's it, ASMR. It's it is basically magic, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, what it is is you hear a sound that should be a neutral sound, and you have this unexplainable, overwhelming feeling in your body. Like, what is that? If not magic, if not like a little like chink of magic in the world that leads to transcendence Hmm. yes please (laughs) um and and tell me a little bit about the writing of all these experiences because you do such a lovely job of juxtaposing um the present day action with the past with so many different kinds of mythologies and fairy tales. I once read, and I can't now remember who said this, but I read a writing, writing advice instruction that mm-hmm. said, anything you have that's good, don't hold on to it. Put it all in. Um, you know, and so as I was writing this, I, I really wanted the structure and the voice to 
be, I wanted it to, to culminate as the story of a woman who has been thinking about all of this for years, mm-hmm. right? So she, this happened to her. She can't quite understand it. She's been going over it. She's telling the story. She's telling the story of the summer. She's thinking about her childhood and how that relates. Maybe she's been doing some research. Mm-hmm. She's been looking up the ways that one might levitate. Mm-hmm. She's been looking up mythologies that she thinks hook in somehow to her experience. And so it's sort of coming out as, as in, in order for her to work it out for herself as she's telling the story. At least this is my conception. And, yeah. you know, as I wrote it, I almost did exactly what you might do when you're trying to figure out the story of something that happened to you. I, you know, I'd be writing and I would, and some, some word or some idea would catch my information. I'd be like, Hmm, Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. And then I would end up in this rabbit hole of yes. research on like small words. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. And, and it's, it's true that if, what happens to Olivia at, during the summer is a formative experience and it's impossible not to think of those kinds of experiences when you are discovering other parts of the world and then applying them thusly. Yeah. Like anything that you are obsessed with um, will resonate in ways that you could never imagine. Yeah, and I wonder whether the things that we're obsessed with, I wonder how much that they actually shape where we end up going and not, where we end up going and not just how we interpret where we end up. Interesting. Um, I, I also love that uh, Olivia tells us, I needed, I needed to learn this, that the Buddha was in fact not a jolly fat guy with a, a lovely belly. Yes, indeed. A very uh, prevalent idea that we have that you can, my book has many important facts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yes, this is one of those things that, again, as, as a kid who grew up with uh, images of the Buddha in my house, I was confused by the fat Buddha. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, he's a, a different deity whose name is, sounds like Buddha. It, his name is Budai. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's a, he's a Chinese deity and his name means clock sack because he carries a bag. <laughs> um, and he is, you know, I mean, he's, he is sort of a, a folk god and, and he represents prosperity, but you can just see exactly how the Westerners got confused. And mm-hmm. then this became the, the prevailing image of the Buddha when in fact the Buddha was an ascetic who yes. wandered meditating and surviving on a grain of rice a day. Right. So, so yeah, he's, he's just, not sitting down for that many meals. No. <laughs> and, 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 of course, that part, too, is something I imagine that I would have been attracted to as a teenage girl, the idea of literal lightness, mm-hmm. of, of 
not eating too, not eating enough and um, how that can make you feel powerful. Unfortunately, I think this is a common thing that, that the literal lightness, for some reason, we have convinced girls that the way to have power is to take up less space in the world mm. as opposed to taking up more space in the world. And it's a real, that's a bad trick that I, I guess we've all collectively played on ourselves. Um, but it does, I mean, there's also just something that, again, if we're talking about the small places in the world where we can find some kind of enhanced feeling. There is something yes. about being hungry that feels different. That feels like, and you get lightheaded. I mean, that's another, yes. that's, I mean, that's a actual, your body has a sensation and learning that you can have control over your body sensations is a kind of power, even though in this sense, it's like a, not a great one. No. And it puts you, I feel like being hungry puts you in the moment like very little else can, can really do. Yeah. I mean, it's more effective than meditation, which is oh. supposed to put you in the moment. <laughs> you uh, know, it's, you, you're, you're very focused when you're hungry. Indeed. <laughs> Emily, thank you so much. Tell me, what you've been reading, what are you working on now for Lit Hub? If you can tell me, like, is there a, something that will be coming soon? Something you've been working on? Well, I am working on our big preview of the second half of the year, which this year is very complicated. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I don't envy you at all. Um, so many different publication dates have been moved around or pushed back, pushed forward, pushed aside. Um, yeah, there, I mean, there are books that were coming out this summer that don't even have actual pub dates anymore, that they're just TBA. But all the more reason, really, to do the work in the back end and make sure that the books get the attention that they deserve. Hmm. Um, the, the novel that is coming out, the, 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 let me see, let me, let me say this in a, in a smarter way. <laughs> the novel that I am most excited for everyone to read is Raven Leilani's Luster. Have you read it? I have. And wow. I'm obsessed with it. Yes. It's so good. It's absolutely the antidote to all of the like arch removed mm -hmm. cold narrators that we've gotten so many of. Many of those books I love to be fair. Yeah, sure. But it is, it, it has been a, a sort of a trend of this distancing and this novel manages to have just as cool and exciting of a voice while also being super passionate and engaged. Yes. And it's just, it's, it's the most exciting book that I have read in a long time. And side note, it, it has some good book publishing critiques. <laughs> just as a side. Just a side. <laughs> 
book what publishing else? being being tough being tough right now <laughs> not a good time also the other the other book also coming out in august is uh diane cook's the new wilderness mm. and i have been obsessed with diane cook since i read her short story collection yes. i read that in grad school and i remember exactly where i was when I started reading it, I was sitting against the library steps in the grass, right at the bottom of the steps. And I read, I think two and a half stories before I flung the book across <laughs> the lawn and just said to myself, no, I, there's no reason for me to be a writer. This is it. She did it. She did everything that I want to do so well. That is the ultimate compliment, right? Yeah. I mean, I just, I couldn't, I was like, oh, there's no work. There's no work to be done for me. <laughs> uh, so, and I think I actually wrote, I wrote that when I was writing about my favorite short story collections of the decade for Lit Hub. And then I found out that, and I was sort of like, where's her novel? <laughs> and then the universe gave me her sent novel. It. Yes. Sent it to me. Um, and it does not disappoint. It is so good. Uh, just a, a sort of a family story and a, it, it's like, I guess it's a post-apocalyptic novel in the sense that we're in the, we're in this future, but the future feels very close. Hmm. And it's sort of like, it's, you know, it's about a group of people who are in a the new wilderness which is basically the last bit of wilderness on the planet and it's cordoned off and controlled by these rangers and they're there for an experiment to see can people live in this way and so there's sort of this it's like back to the land in the future <laughs> and it's very good i can't wait well emily thank you so much Thank you so much for having me. I hope me. I, I get to it. see you back in the office whenever that might be. <laughs> back in the world. Back in the world. If we ever get there. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.